Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. And while you're sitting, if you would open your Bibles with me to Psalm 119. There is much that we could talk about with Simchat Torah and the Feast of Tabernacles. We spend a great deal of time just focusing on how the days are constructed. You know, it's interesting, in Leviticus 23, it says, the Feast of Tabernacles is a seven-day festival, and then it says, and on the eighth day, you're to have a holy convocation. And you read that and you say, I thought it was a seven-day festival. Well, it was for a verse. Then it becomes an eight-day festival. And then when the rabbis get a hold of it, it becomes a nine-day festival because they add Simcha Torah to it. And who knows what would happen if the Gentiles had their hands on this festival, right? Who knows what it would become? But in any case, I wanted to draw our attention to Psalm 119 because that psalm is a psalm that is devoted to one theme. And that is the importance, the significance, the delight, the joy, the wonder, the splendor of the Word of God. And that's what we're thinking about this morning. We're celebrating, rejoicing over the giving of God's Word. And Psalm 119 really is an expression of that joy over the Word of God. This is a unique psalm, as you can tell. First of all, it's the longest psalm in the Bible. More than that, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. So this is a big, big section of Scripture. There's 176 verses in this passage. That's quite a lot, isn't it? And it's set up in a very unique way. It's really an acrostic. You know, there are 22 stanzas because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Each stanza has eight verses, and each one of the verses in a given stanza begin with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first eight verses begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the letter Aleph. In many of your Bibles, you'll see over the top, it'll say Aleph. Some of you will even have the Hebrew letter printed on the page. So the very first eight verses, all eight of them begin with the letter Aleph. The second series of eight verses all begin with the letter Beit. The next series of eight verses all begin with the letter Gimel, all the way down till you get to the very last letter in the Hebrew alphabet, the letter Tuf. There's only one other book that does something like this, and that is the book of Lamentations. In chapter 3, you'll find that Jeremiah does the same thing. There are 22 stanzas, but instead of eight verses per stanza in Jeremiah's work, it's three verses per stanza, but each stanza, again, starts with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 
One of the reasons for that is to sort of reinforce. It's stylistic. It's meant to reinforce the truths that the writer wants to get across. It's also meant to be a help to us to memorize this psalm. Now, I don't know about you, but 176 verses of this psalm, this cannot be an easy task, don't you think? Although I had some friends, I'll never forget, years and years ago, when I was driving to a speaking engagement, and there was a fellow that was with me, and he was like a memorizer of the Bible. I mean, that was his thing. And so he said to me, hey, Gary, you want to hear some of the Bible? I said, sure. What are are we going to listen to? And he said, I'm going to recite for you John 14 through 17. And I said... Really? <laughs> you know, really? And there he went. Boom. And he had that thing down. He said, hey, you want to hear the Sermon on the Mount? You know, chapters 5 through 7. And he, that was his shtick. You know, he just wanted to memorize and memorize. And uh, by the way, there are some who had memorized this psalm as well. You know, in fact, in, you know, uh, William Wilberforce, the fellow that had led the, the uh, whole ending of the slave trade in the British Empire, He writes in his diary in 1819 that while he was crossing Hyde Park Corner, that he had recited Psalm 119 a few times, and he says, it had brought much comfort to my soul. David Livingston, by the way, I read, had also memorized this psalm and said that it had sustained him through some of the most trying times while he was reaching those uh, individuals, those people, those tribes uh, in Africa. And there were others that I read about who had memorized the psalm as a child, nine years old, was forced to memorize Psalm 119 by his parents. And he was so upset. He said he grew up like just being so angry that he did this until he got older. And then when he got older and he was going through trials, he would start reciting the psalm to himself. And he said, I'm so glad I could just recite this psalm, you know. And we all go through that too, right? I remember growing up and being raised in an Orthodox Jewish home and being in synagogue Friday night, Saturday morning, Hebrew school on Sunday and Tuesday and Thursday. At the time, it was like, oh, do I have to go again? And, you know, it was like double the homework and all this stuff. And now, as I look back, and certainly for many years that I've known the Lord, I said, I'm so grateful for the experiences I had uh, in those places and how God was orchestrating in all those moments, you know, to bring me to the place he would have me brought to. And so it's that way with memorization. But in any case, this is a very powerful, powerful psalm. It's about the Word of God. So let me read these verses to you, verses 1 to 8. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along too. He says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. You know, in Psalm 119, scholars have said every single verse has a reference to the word of God. 
Now, some scholars have gotten very diligent with that and have really dissected this passage. And they say, well, I think I found a verse or two where the word of God is not made reference to. But what I did read that is that out of the 176 verses in this psalm, no less than 171 clearly refer to the word of God. Every verse says something about the word of God. And the writer in his crafting of this psalm, uses eight different Hebrew words for the word of God. He'll use the word Torah, which is the word for law. And so you read the word law here. But what he means by Torah, although the word Torah can refer to the scroll that we carried around, that is a Torah scroll, technically. But we often just say, hey, you're going to use the Torah today, you know. But what we mean is the Torah scroll. Sometimes the word Torah means the first five books of Moses. Sometimes the word Torah means the 613 commandments. But most often the word Torah means the entirety of God's word. That's how the writer or the psalmist in Psalm 119 uses the word Torah. Literally, it means instruction or teaching. But he's using it in its broadest sense, meaning all of the word of God as God's revelation to us. He uses the word mitzvah. You know, we talk about young people at the age of 13, if it's a boy, becoming a bar mitzvah. The word bar, by the way, is an Aramaic word for the Hebrew word ben. It means son of. So a bar mitzvah is a 13-year-old boy that becomes a son of the law. That is to say, he now is responsible to obey the 613 commandments. Up to that time, he had not yet reached, according to Jewish thought, the age of accountability, so he is spared the judgment of God, for failure to live up to the word of God. But when he becomes a bar mitzvah, he becomes a son of the law. That is one committed to doing the word of God. A daughter will become a bat mitzvah, a daughter of the law. But the word mitzvah means commandment. So a mitzvot is a commandment. Sometimes we speak about doing a good deed and we say, oh, that's a mitzvah. That means that's a good deed. But the word literally means commandment. And sometimes the writer or the psalmist will use the word mitzvah to speak of the word of God because they are commands from him to us. Sometimes he'll use the word mishpat, which is a word that means judgments of God. Not in the, in the negative word meaning of the word, but the sense of the manifestation of justice. For his people. The Word of God is a book of justices. They're books in which we are encouraged to be righteous and to be uh, fair to one another, to be just individuals. And so, in that sense, his word is a word of justice to us. There are eight such words, and there are other ones as well. We don't need to go through all of them. But if you look at this first, passage, I think that at least four of them occur in the first eight verses. Take a look, for example, he says, uh, those who, in verse one, who walk in the law, law, my jersey keeps coming at, you know, keeps sneaking up on me, the law, law of, of the Lord. And then in verse two, he talks about keeping his testimonies. In verse four, he speaks about them as precepts. In verse five, he speaks about them as 
statutes. In verse 7, he speaks of them as righteous rules. All of those phrases are meant to speak about the word of God in its entirety. So this is a passage that focuses on God's word. It just keeps becoming riveted toward us. Not only that, but this psalm is very much, if you turn back just very briefly to the very first psalm, which begins by saying, blessed is the man. And then if you go down to verse 2, let's forget about who doesn't. But let's see, blessed is the man in what he does do. Look at verse 2. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So Psalm 1 opens up with a blessed statement. Psalm 19 has two blessed statements. The Hebrew word here is ashrei, and it literally means happy is the one who, in the first verse, who delights in the law of the Lord, and on this law, the word of God, he meditates day and night. In Psalm 119, he says, happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Happy are those who keep his statutes, who seek him with their whole heart. So this is a psalm about the word of God. But on another level, it's a psalm about, it's answering the question, how can we become happy people? There's nothing wrong with being happy. What was that song that was just uh, not too long ago, right? In Disney or whatever. There's nothing wrong with being happy. And God wants us to be happy. It's the abnormal individual who doesn't want to be happy, right? Who's sort of caught in this morose state of being and sort of finds delight in just being melancholy. There was a time in my life I was like that. I was just very happy. Just leave me alone. Don't come near me. Let me just sit in the corner and listen to music with my headphones on so that the world is just, you know, excluded from me in any way, shape, or form. But the reality is I wasn't really happy. There was a momentary, you know, enjoyment, perhaps. But in terms of a life that is a happy life, that's what God wants from us. You know, our attitude oftentimes is that God is trying to, you know, reign on our parade. That somehow God wants us, you know, to be solemn all the time or to be scared of him or to be concerned or anxious that we don't do anything wrong because if we do, he's up there ready to pound on us in one way or another. But the psalmist is telling us if you have that view of God, you don't know God. If you have that view of God, he's telling us we need to get to know him because he's not like that at all. And his word is not intended to reveal anything of that nature about God at all. What his word is meant to reveal to us is what a delight he is and what a joy it is to know him and how desirable he is that our life would be a happy one. Now you ask the question, why is our life so unhappy at so many moments in time for all kinds of reasons? You know, when I teach the scriptures and I come to the book of Genesis in the very first three chapters, and I oftentimes make reference to it in one way or another, but those first three, chapter, first three chapters answer all the main questions that we as human beings have. You know, so our first question is, where do we come from? And Genesis 1 tells us we were created by God who spoke our being into existence, who formed human beings out of the dust of the earth. So where do we come from? From from an all-good, righteous, all-powerful God who has made us in his image. That's how wonderful he is. He made us to be something like him. 
And so our first question is, you know, where do we come from? The second question is, why are we even here? Why do we even exist? And Genesis 1 tells us to uh, bring glory and honor to the Lord, to obey him, be fruitful and multiply, to obey him, to not eat from the tree of the fr- or the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to obey him. And in obeying him, we bring glory and honor to his name. That's why we're here, ultimately to glorify him in everything and in anything that we do. Well, then you ask the question, well, then why is it that we don't do that? Why is it that we fail to glorify him and thereby enjoy his creation, be the happy kind of people God wants us to be? And Genesis 3 tells us because sin has entered into the world. And because of sin, we are very unhappy. In fact, we'll see in a moment, the psalmist says just that. But then you ask the question, are we stuck in this unhappy state? Are we stuck in this place whereby sin will just have its way and control over us? And Genesis 3.15 says, no, 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 no. The seed of the woman's going to come and crush the head of the serpent and put an end to all that, has, all that he has done in bringing about sin into our world and unhappiness to our lives. So all of that is found in the very first three verses, uh, chapters of the book of Genesis. And when we get to these Psalms, we're being told, well, this is how you can experience the happiness of God in a sin-fallen world. So take a look at this with me. First of all, he says, he tells us the way to happiness is devotion to the word of God. That's his point. He says in verse 3, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. Now, he doesn't mean being sinlessly perfect. But what he does mean to say is if we follow the teachings of God's word, if we follow along in what he has commanded us, inscribed for us, led us to, informed us of, we will be a happy people. But he tells us in verse 3 that we are to, uh, who no longer walk, Uh, who also no longer do wrong, but walk in his ways. But look at verse 5. If you think that the psalmist is some kind of an idealist, some kind of an individual who stands like head and shoulders above us and is somehow empowered in a way that we are not, after all, he's a writer of the scripture. After all, this would be one who would follow in the ways of God. If you think that, then you really have not understood who these writers are, because look what he says in verse five. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. The very moment he says the way to happiness is by keeping his statutes. He also admits, I wish I could be like that. I wish I could be one who is always obeying his statutes. But the fact of the matter is I do wrong. And why do I do wrong? Because sin has its power over me as well. Not its complete power, because otherwise I would not know God, but it has such a powerful influence over my life that even when I want to do good, the psalmist is indicating he struggles to do good. And this is not just the word of the psalmist. This is not just an Old Testament idea. It's not just a rabbinic idea. But if you turn with me to the New Covenant Scriptures, the Brit Shah, the New Testament Scriptures, in Romans chapter 7... One of those most powerful statements of honest truth, Paul reveals to us his own struggle in this same area of life. He tells us that the things that he wants to do, he does not find himself doing. And he says, for example, in verse 15, 
of chapter 7. For I do not understand my own actions. Have you ever felt that way? I don't know what it, why did I do that? Why did I say that? You know, I could have refrained from that if I really wanted to. I really did want to, but I didn't want to on another level. So what's going on here? Paul says the same thing. He says, for I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I even hate to do. And so Paul reveals the same struggle, the same internal dilemma that the psalmist speaks about as well. The psalmist, as well as Paul, tells us the answer. In Romans 8, verse 1, he says, you know, praise God that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Messiah Yeshua. Even though I find myself struggling, I at least no longer remain condemned. And in fact, I can begin to triumph over that dilemma because the spirit of God will be given to those who are followers of Yeshua, who will empower them to walk in a way that is honorable and right before God. I find a similar thing happens here in Psalm 19, but before we look at that, I do want us to look at one other thing. The psalmist is not merely concerned with an academic understanding of the Word of God. Many of us take delight in that realm. You know, if you're sort of cerebrally uh, charged, You know, you like to think about things. You like to reflect on them. Um, I just love to learn stuff, you know. And it's sort of like, and I I, I try to justify it. I think I probably could pretty well, but I'm not certain it's the whole story. But, you know, we said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So mind really jumps out at me. You know, so when I'm just learning stuff, I feel like uh, I'm loving God. At least if it's not with my whole heart, it's a good part of my mind, you know. And so we take delight in the things that we learn uh, about anything, really. I mean, all of God's creation is his creation. So it's wonderful to learn all kinds of things. But uh, particularly, I find incredible um, just uh, satisfaction when I'm sort of probing the word of God and something stands out at me, something fits in a way I hadn't seen it before, and it now begins to make sense. And that sort of confirms not only its truth to me, but it also confirms a sense of fitting right. And I find delight in that, you know. But the psalmist is not concerned about that. He's not concerned that we understand it all. He's not concerned that we learn it all. He's not concerned that we can articulate what we've come to appreciate and understand. What he's concerned about is that our life is transformed because of the things that we learn. And so I want you to see this because look what he says in verse 1. He says, blessed are those whose way is blameless. You know? Not blessed are those who have as much understanding of the word of God as they can understand. He says, blessed are those whose way is blameless. That is, whose life is blameless. A life that reflects the character of God. He says it over and over. Look at the second part of that. Who walk in the law of the Lord. It's how we conduct our lives. 
how we walk with him. Whenever I read the word walk, two words or two ideas, two thoughts come immediately to mind. One is the book of Ephesians, right? Because you can divide, what is it, six chapters, I think? And you can divide it into three parts, two chapters, two chapters, two chapters. Very easy to remember. Watchman Nee had a book entitled by it, Sit, Walk, Stand. (laughs) So the first two chapters are about sitting in the heavenly places. The chapters three and four is about uh, walking in the spirit of God. And chapters five and six is about standing in ministry and in service and particularly standing up against the enemy who is the enemy of our souls. Sit, walk, stand. But that idea of walking, you know, in addition to Ephesians, I always think of Enoch, who's described as that one who walked with God and was not because God took him. Over and over again, you read these passages, you know, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. The Lord invites Abraham, right? He invites him to take a walk (laughs) with God. It's a pretty long walk, right? From Ur, the Chaldeans, all the way to the land of Israel. I thought we were just going for a little walk. Well, I, you know, I wasn't quite exactly clear how far we're going, but we're going a little ways. Just stay up, you know, just keep up with me. And you and I are in a walk, Right? We're in a journey that takes us through all kinds of dips and roads. And whether even we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with us. And therefore, we fear no evil, right? So, we're always, you know, you can just do a whole thing on walking. But notice, none of it is about understanding, per se. None of it's about intellectualizing, per se. Nothing is about unraveling. It's all about being with God, walking with him, and coming alongside of him and being led by him and following him. That's what the psalmist wants us to do. If we do that, he's telling us, you will be the most happy person you could ever be. (laughs) First of all, you have a lifetime companion. I will never leave you nor forsake you, you know. You'll have a guide who will never lead you in the wrong way. Even though it seems wrong to us, we'll look back and say, wait a minute, our good shepherd, good shepherd, our good shepherd will never lead us into the wrong place. He'll never lead us into a bad place because he's a good shepherd who cares for his sheep, protects his sheep, guards his sheep, keeps his sheep, feeds his sheep, and does all these kinds of things to us sheep that sustains us at every moment. The psalmist wants us to be blessed, to be happy, And happiness will come by walking with God. And walking with God will occur when we devote ourselves to the word of God, which instructs us on how it is he wants us to walk with him. And he's completely honest about the fact that this is a struggle, right? Oh, if only I could be steadfast the way I'm talking about it. I feel that way oftentimes when I'm teaching or preaching or sharing, you know. I don't want anyone to ever think somehow I've, you know, got this, you know. Or somehow because I understand something, it has been inculcated in my life the way I would like it to be or the way God might want it to be. It's a process. And over time, I've gotten better. 
But I've also found out that as, as time goes on, the, the, the journey, the road is a lot longer than I thought it was. And so I've gotten better, but there's like, yikes, a whole lot more. The road just got longer, you know, and it's gotten narrower. And so even though I've made progress, there's so much more progress to make in every facet of our life. But that's the blessed thing, right? And if we follow him, we will experience that happiness as a result of knowing that life is somewhat content and that God is with us at every place, at every stage, and that God is guiding us and directing us. It is important, however, like the psalmist, that we are not content with the honesty of our souls. It's not enough to merely be content. I'm a sinner, therefore I fail much and often in every way. Even the psalmist is not content with that. It's important that we're honest about who we are, not so that we remain the way we are, but so that we would seek to become different than the way we are. So look at the last verses here. He says, first of all, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast. Verse 5. If they were, then I would not be put to shame. And then look at this. He says in verse 8, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. In my mind, the psalmist, I think, goes through this stage. He's telling us, and maybe even himself, reminding himself, that the way to true fulfillment, we use that word today in his day, true happiness. And by the way, we can't get into this, but the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, are Messiah's statements about how to be happy. They're very much like these statements here. But the point is, he's telling us, first of all, the way to be happy is to be devoted to the word of God. Devoted to the word of God. Meditating on it, Psalm 1, meditate on it day and night. If you meditate on it day and night, no doubt some of it will seep in and be memorized as well, right? Everyone, know, everyone in this room can attest to that. If you've meditated, there's some things that are just there. You didn't try to memorize it, but you're just doing it all the time that these words are just there, right? So he says, first of all, the way to happiness is by devoting yourself to the word of God. Meditate on it day and night. Be in it regularly. First thing up in the morning, last thing before you go to sleep. I'm telling you, if you just do a little bit, a lot. I used to tell my students that. Don't do a lot, a little bit. Don't, like, read the whole Bible in one weekend and say, oh, I've got it. You know? I always told my students, when you're ready for a test, do a little bit, a lot. Don't cram the night before a lot in a little bit. Right? Spread it out over time. Do a little bit, a lot. So even if you just devote yourself to reading before you go to bed, after you go to bed, and maybe when you have lunch, you got your Bible there with you if you have time, a little bit at a, a lot of moments, and it will seep in. And so the psalmist is saying, do you want to be happy? You have to walk with God. How do you walk with God? You have to get the word of God into your heart into your life, not just your mind. It has to come into your mind, but so as to filter down into your life. And then when it filters down into your life, you need to take an honest inventory of who we are. We are ones who wish we were as steadfast as we would like to be because we would be happier yet and God would be most pleased with us, right? So we're honest about ourselves. It's not all there yet. But we don't leave it there. 
and be content that it's not all there. And the psalmist doesn't either. Look what he says. He makes a resolve. Despite the fact that I cannot do this all, he makes the resolve, I will keep your statutes. Isn't that kind of interesting? I like guys like that, you know? Whatever it takes, I'm doing it. I'll be there. I'll be there for you. I'm on the front lines. I'm on your, on your side. I love that kind of phrasing. I love that kind of commitment. I will keep your, how do my translation, your statutes. Are you ready to make that kind of commitment to God? Are you ready to say, I will keep, you know? Now, the fact of the matter is, he realizes his struggle. So he not only has a resolve, a resolution, I will keep your commandment, he also has a confession. And his confession is, oh, that I could keep them steadfast, you know. His confession is, without you, I can't do this. Without your word, I don't know what to do. And without your spirit living in my life, I don't know how to do it because otherwise I can't. That's what Paul says, you know. Thank God that Messiah, there's no, therefore now no condemnation. Messiah lives in us by his spirit. So he has a resolution. He determines. He resolves, I'm going to live according to your statutes. I'm going to make the word of God a priority in my life. And not only in my life, but in my actions, in my attitudes, in my conduct, in my way of relating to one another. I think the Francis Chan video is sort of challenging us on this score too. The psalmist is doing the same. I will do differently than what I've done before. And the only way he confesses I could do that is not by somehow pulling up my will by my bootstraps, but it's by dependency upon his spirit who must empower me to do this. Lord, you have to make it possible in my life, but I need to yield myself to you in the process. And thus he ends with a plea. His plea is, do not utterly forsake me. Now, he's not concerned about losing his salvation. The scriptures is very clear, both the Hebrew scriptures and the New Covenant scriptures. I will never leave you nor forsake you. What he's desirous of is that God would stay with him step by step along the way to where he will be walking with him. Don't forsake me in this process because without you I can't do this. Don't leave me unto myself, because then I will utterly fail. So he resolves, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to keep your statutes. He has a confession. I fail miserably at this, but with your empowerment, I can do better and better each and every day. And therefore, I plead with you, Lord, do not utterly forsake me. But stay alongside of me, be patient with me, work with me, and make it a reality in my life and in my experiences and in the experiences of those around me. Today, we're observing Simchat Torah. The worship team can come up if they like. Today, we're observing Simchat Torah, rejoicing over the giving of the word of God. I want you to rejoice over the giving of the word of God because the word of God is that which will enable you to walk with God. And when you walk with God, you will be most happy in your own life and the lives around you will be most happy too, won't they? And so we want to be a happy people, a rejoicing people. 
And that means we have to be an obedient people, a righteous people, a walking with God kind of people that only he can enable us to be. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your marvelous word to us this day. We're thankful, Father, that your desire is for us to be joyful and that the joy of the Lord would be our strength in every kind of weakness. That the joy of the Lord would strengthen us to walk in your ways. The joy of the Lord, the love of the Lord would strengthen us to be the kind of forgiving people we need to be with one another. The joy of the Lord, the strength of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord would be that one who would enable us and who would empower us to be patient with one another, to be long-suffering, to be gentle, to be compassionate, to be sensitive, to be peacemakers, to be loving with one another. So, Lord, it's all about your presence in our lives and our devotion to your word to empower us and to instruct us in every step that we take. So on this Simchat Torah, this day of rejoicing over the law, I want to give you all an opportunity to respond to the psalmist's words as the psalmist responded to his own words. If you feel compelled by God and not just emotionally stirred, but you're saying this Sukkot, this Simchat Torah moment is a moment that you would like to say, like the psalmist has said, I am determined to obey your statutes, to live pleasingly before you, dependent upon your spirit to empower me to do that. If that is your desire, I'm just going to ask very quickly, just raise your hand, put it down, and I just want to pray with you. And okay, and I'll certainly pray for you. I'll pray for you guys. I'll pray for you as well. Yes, we'll pray together. This is our time to say, Lord, I am determined. I need your help. Don't utterly forsake me. It is by your spirit. But I need to make a decision. You know, it's sort of like Paul says in Romans chapter 12, where he says, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. So this morning, as you put your hand up and place it down, you're basically saying, I am offering myself. Okay. And I see those hands and I'll pray for you. Okay. And you can just put them down right after you raise them. And the whole point is that we are saying, Lord, we want to give our lives as living sacrifices and help us to devote ourselves to your word. Help us to meditate on it. Help us to have it just inculcated into our very innermost being. We need to learn it, but we need to do it. We need to understand it, but we need to perform it. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us, help me as well, to do this and to respond Similarly, And maybe some don't know you as Messiah and Lord, have not acknowledged Yeshua. That's the first step. You need to know him in order to be empowered by him. You need to know him to enter the journey. You need to know him to be on that path that leads to everlasting life. You need to know him in order to do what is necessary, in order to experience the happiness that only he can provide. 
So if you need to invite the Lord into your life, you can raise your hand, put it down, and I will pray that you will pray for you, that the Lord will enter into your heart. Certainly, I'll pray. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.